economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Lou Graham, producer and graduate assistant for the Gordon Institute. With us, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gordon Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. We have Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gordon Professor of Economic Education and Research. And finally, my fellow graduate assistant-elect, Lawson Denman. All right. Well, you know, I like to pose to my principal students early on in class, you know, if you go to the store and buy a two liter of Mountain Dew for $2.14, what's it worth to you? And inevitably, most of them will be thinking $2.14. And the truth as economists see it is that you've only revealed that you at least value it at $2.14 and that you have some sort of value that you've placed on it that is known to you that is subjective value. And so um, we're going to kind of pick at that because we have our philosopher here who might have some opinions on objective versus subjective value. Um, I think that uh, at the heart of economics, that's what drives things is that we all value things differently. And that's what allows markets to help facilitate trade and exchange and making us better off. Um, but uh, you have a few bones to pick on subjective value, do you, Justin. Do you mind if I jump in? First? Yeah, yeah. So the this is a really long discussion in economics uh, that you know even Adam Smith didn't quite understand where value came from. So a, the leading theory of value for a long time was this idea of the labor theory of value which is that things have value according to how hard it is to get them, basically. And to be right up front, that's the Marxist view. That that's right. Still is maintained, I think, by some people. Even yeah, though yeah, there are, there are some Marxists who uh, say, people oh, there's who use value. And, uh, yeah. Not just the Marxist. Yeah, it, that's right. It yeah. wasn't just the Marxist. It was the mainstream, uh, classical, we could say, economic yeah. view yeah. on value because no one had figured quite out. But it, it didn't quite work. And they recognized instances where like this didn't quite fit, where some things were hard to get. And people don't like, you know, uh, if I carve a, a wooden nickel with the skyline of Ottawa, Kansas on it, that might be really hard for me. But you, maybe no one will buy it. Right. Uh, well, what's interesting, kind of related to our conversation this morning, was that your labor you own and that you can trade. And so I think that was maybe somewhat at the heart of that original theory yeah I, I, you know that I, you i think there was what, something to that that yeah. your your labor has some sort of like inherent value if you can trade it maybe property rights or something but yeah. basically uh that this was kind of unable to solve lots of problems and one problem uh that it couldn't quite satisfy was the idea of the diamonds water paradox and you know so why for example uh you know, is diamond are diamonds more valuable than uh, water in a specific instance? And uh, this seems to be true regardless of how readily accessible diamonds or water are. It tends to be diamonds are harder to access, but even in the case that they are water, uh, still more important. And so there's this question like, why is are diamonds valuable if they're essentially worthless? This is something that was really hard to answer. Uh, and basically, uh, the way that the answer was given is that, well, value is really determined by the people who make valuations, value subjective, and it's the marginal unit. You don't trade all water in the world for all diamonds in the world. You trade a specific cup of water for a specific diamond. And so the idea was that what people value, the marginal units of an object is what its value is. 
so sometimes it's called a subjective theory of value. And there's kind of multiple uh, different thinkers who, who came to this. But Justin thinks he knows better than all of econ economics and all economists. And before Justin jumps in, I, I think that's a good thing to point out with kind of the stock of these things, all of the diamonds in the world. The market that's created is maybe only what, 5%? I'm just even pulling a number out of thin air, but like 5% of the diamonds in the world are for sale at any given right. point in time, right? So listeners, I just want you to think that that's where that value is determined is that not diamonds as a whole or water as a whole, but yeah. that in the marketplace, there's only a fraction of the entire stock that's available for sale at any point in time. Yeah, that's right. So, All right, Dr. Clark. All right, we're four minutes and 20 seconds in. Are you guys done? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. All right. <laughs> Uh, so um, I think that a lot of what economists say about uh, what value is and where it comes from is great. Um, but I think that there are a few claims that economists in both um, mainstream economics and in what's called, you know, the Austrian um, theory Austrian economics um, actually makes some claims about what value is and where it resides that is, these claims tend to be, I think, philosophically incoherent in the sense that they depend on some categories which most philosophers think don't uh, exist in the way that economists are deploying them anymore. So um, you can find economists who talk about value saying three distinct things about um, the subject about value being subjective. So this, these three claims together are what I take to be the subjective theory of value. Uh, the first is that values are subjective in the sense that they are values are properties that exists in the mind of a valuing subject, um, usually a human being, and this is made to be. Uh, distinct from the claim that values are in objects themselves. Um, and so this was uh, a key feature of the labor theory of value. And this is a claim about where that subjectivity has to do with where values exist, where they are. Uh, the second claim is that values are epistemically private. That is that only individuals um, know what is of value to them. So, uh, since these properties exist in particular individuals, um, they are, you, uh, you have direct access to what you value. And the third claim is that our values are incontestable in the sense that, you know, since they exist in us and since they are epistemically private in the sense that we are the only ones who have direct access to our values, we are also infallible with regard to our personal value claims. For anyone who doubts whether or not these, <laughs> these claims are true, I think that I think all three of these claims are false, but if, if you're also interested, I have a paper and I can show you exactly where all three of these claims are made in the economics literature. Um, now, what do we get if these claims are true? Uh, one of the things that economists use all of these- Apart from the right answer. Yeah, <laughs> is you get, you get the claim that when we have rational, prudent creatures interacting with each other, we will always get mutual gains from trade. And we will get material benefits and an increase of society's well-being, uh, general wealth to society, from a system of laissez-faire, uh, letting people trade as they want. Now, both, BT, both, both these claims follow from the subjectivity of value. And both of these claims that we get mutual gains from trade and that uh, laissez-faire policy um, results in general society well, societal well-being, these are really important. 
And all, both of these claims have been verified empirically. Just that sneak and laissez-faire, hands off, no outside intervention, two free human beings trading with each other, right? Yeah, like, it literally means leave nope, us alone. Leave us alone. Um, yeah. yeah. And so <clears throat> looking back, uh, especially with the history of the 20th century behind us, we know that these two claims are empirically true, that it turns out that societies that have a laissez-faire policy generally do have more wealth. And that in most cases of trade, uh, you know, we do get general gains from trade. So that's great. These claims are uh, worth defending. And that's important because the general way that they're defended usually is, I claim, wrong because all three of those um, claims about subject value subjectivity, I think, are as written false, though they all, of course, contain nuggets of, you know, truth. Can I, can I interject now, Justin? Yeah. Uh, uh, since you've been talking for at least four minutes and two seconds. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, so I... Let I want to start off and get your position clarified uh, for the folks at home. Uh, we can explain this to the folks at home. Um, let's say that you are right that value does not, in fact, exist in the mind of valuators, but it exists in the object itself. I don't make that claim. Okay. I was going to say, he hasn't even laid out his full case. Okay. All right. So, so that's where it's good to clarify. So the, the value doesn't rest in the object. Values as properties aren't anywhere. Properties don't exist anywhere. Wow. Blowing me away okay. and nothing. Continue exists. then. Yeah. Let, let, let's continue before I continue my question. Okay. One of the. Uh, one I haven't of the, made it to this part in the paper yet. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one of the reasons that we get the claims that we do about value subjectivity, I claim, is because that people who started this verbiage in economics had only read philosophy pretty much up until the moderns and the logical empiricists. Um, and modern philosophers spent a lot of time trying to answer the questions about like where color is. Is color actually in the objects or is color something that we as humans project on the world? Rough date range for moderns just for uh, from, you know, 1400 till the uh, yeah. middle 18, 1800s. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, uh, you know, these are claims about like you know, whether or not solidity is a property in the world, whether time and space like sure. concept are projected on the world, et cetera. And so we have this... Uh, Moderns mostly divided the world into properties that were objective or subjective, or they're also mm -hmm. often called primary or secondary qualities too. And uh, it turns out that it's actually very, very hard to figure out where properties are, period. Um, and it, one of the reasons that we arrived at this claim that uh, properties must be somewhere is uh, due to problems in the philosophy of language, where we said what uh, a name, if we say like, Jim is tall, uh, that sentence, um, it has propositional unity. So the Jim part, the names something in the world that's the Jim, and then tallness names, uh, you know, a property. Um, and of course, the good economist says compared to what? <laughs> compared to Jim. Yeah. Um, so it turns out that if, if we actually do philosophy of language in ways that were developed in the 20th century, um, we actually don't assign properties uh, as existence out in the world. We just say for Jim to be tall, it just means that is tall is true of Jim. So uh, this divides sentences and predicates and objects, which yeah. uh, it's, it's just a really roundabout way to say that um, certain features of our language named objects and certain features of our language are predicates. And what people normally take to be predicates are um, uh, things that 
the philosophers used to call properties. So, um, for instance, if we take the is tall example, uh, we might say like, where is the tallness? Um, like if Jim is tall, where does the tallness exist? You might say, well, it exists where Jim is. And you go, well, where exactly on Jim is the tallness? Um, <laughs> is it like right up here? Um, is it, you know, lower than that? Uh, and tall is actually a pretty easy property, right? Because it's, it's one that tends to be a physical property. Um, if Jim is loved by Alice, right? Where's the, where's the loved by Aliceness? Or if Jim is the third uh, heir to the throne of the Ethiopians or whatever, um, we wonder like, where is this property third heir, um, third heir of the Ethiopians? So um, to the throne of the Ethiopians. So actually uh, it turns out that to do philosophy of language, uh, at least passively, you don't have to give a location for where properties are. Um, and um, so we have philosophers like Donald Davidson in the 20th century saying uh, it's just a mistake to think that properties have to exist out, out there somewhere in the world. Uh, what a property uh, for a object to have a property is just for that predicate to be true of that object. It's just for Jim to have the property of tallness is just for is tall to be true of Jim. And that goes for colors and that goes for um, moral properties too, and it goes for mental properties as well. So a lot of this uh, was done with philosophy of mind in the 20th century, because it turns out that it's very hard to point out to where, for instance, where someone's anger is, right? You can't open their head and say, oh, well, their C-fiber 38 is firing, so yeah, they're angry. Which we do have a previous episode on that we'll link to in the show notes, which is a good philosophy. So, of so now I, I will interrupt with a, a question. So your comment is like, well, it would maybe your comment is something like it would be wrong to say that value exists in the subjects because value doesn't actually exist anywhere in particular, or at least we don't know that it exists somewhere in particular. My question to you is, uh, what if I rephrase this question a little bit differently? What if I ask you, uh, is it true that people, in fact, act upon the evaluations of values uh, that they believe? Would you agree with that? I think that's mostly true, right? Um, but not completely true. Not always true. Uh, okay. When is it not true? When people act irrationally in cases of ecratic behavior. Okay. And, and what can you elaborate on that? What, what are acting irrationally would be? Um, acting irrationally is when you know something is the right course of action, uh, but you do something differently, right? Um, so in, in philosophy, generally, this is called weakness of will. Um, or like an alcoholic, like your addiction or something physically drives it or something it doesn't really matter right? yeah or something, something like uh, what you want. yeah um a, a good example might be you know in you know in the myths something like tying yourself to the mast um so in uh in the odyssey maybe it's the iliad when um uh it's the odyssey it's odysseus yeah okay when it's odysseus coming back uh he has to travel by the sirens and he knows that if if he hears the sirens still uh he'll uh, take a ship that, you know, the, the sirens will kill him because everybody who hears the sirens immediately is overcome with a desire to uh, see the sirens. Um, so what Odysseus does is tie himself to the mast and plug, uh, plug all his rowers ears so that he, uh, so that he is unable to act sure. on his desires and beliefs at the time. Right. Um, and so, uh, and Russ mentioned something like alcoholism. It turns out that, uh, you know, a lot of addict behavior um, can usually, you know, be described as somebody saying like that they're uh, acting 
against what they know is their own best interest at the time. Now, some people, and I can already see Peter grimacing, uh, yes, try to think that. Uh, no, actually, uh, actually, this is this is their um, this is their preference. Their new the taste of preference. And I don't even think you need to go that far. I would just be satisfied if you were willing to say that at least at some points they believe it's their preference. At least at some points in their minds, they do the evaluation and say, "Okay, actually, this is the right thing to do." That's all I'm interested in, in in having an admission for. Not that they're right, or that after the fact they'll be happy about the decision, or before the fact. All right. Well, this looks like a good spot for a break. Justin's got the bated breath here to <laughs> rip up Peter's comments, so we will be back in just a bit. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for free enterprise education and its contribution to human flourishing, faith and economics in action. We have some great high school student programs like PPE Fest. This is an event where students get to listen to some world-renowned speakers and then participate in competition geared around philosophy, politics, and economics. Our everyday economics program is just a half day on a Saturday, and we will have an integrated discussion about common sense economics. We have a college credit microeconomics course that runs every eight weeks. Your high school student can earn college credit for the special price of $200. If you know some students interested in programs like these, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. Ottawa University has an exciting new major, PPE, which stands for philosophy, politics, and economics. Each of these three fields is interesting in their own right, but they intersect in ways that are important to understand, both individually and for your community. If you find philosophy fascinating, but want to make sure that your study of the subject is practical, if you enjoy economic analysis, but want to see how economic laws interact with moral principles, if you are interested in politics, but want to explore how economic and ethical realities constrain our political choices, you should consider the PPE program at Ottawa University. All right, and we're back. So Justin, rip away on Peter's. All right. Well, Peter, you said you'd be happy if uh, we said that. Well, just at least at, at one time, the per at the time when the person acts, maybe they think that it is at their uh, in their own interest, even though they might be wrong. Yeah, about that, it. I, I'm I'm willing to concede okay. that. They could, in fact, there's lots of instances where I think people are wrong about what's best for them. Okay. So even if we admit that, then we have to give up S three, which is that um, we are infallible. Yes. But, I, oh, I agree yeah. with that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, then it turns out. Uh, as long as you're willing to give up that, then we're throwing out the subjective theory of value anyway. Yeah, but, as, it, as it stands. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, but it turns out that there are going to be cases like uh, that are at least possible where somebody is saying, even at the time that they're doing it, uh, I know this is a bad idea, but I can't stop myself from doing it, right? Um, and insofar as those cases are even uh, possible, and they are extremely rare, right? Um, but I think that if you actually look at, in particular, addicts, that this seems to be something that uh, that can occur, right? And so in that case, then we have to say one of two things. We have to say that they are uh, lying to us, which it doesn't seem like they're doing, or that they are wrong, uh, like wrong about what their own values are to themselves. Um, and that seems like a problem too. So it's just that these cases, there are going to be some cases which force us into uh, making at least some claim that's going to falsify at least S1, S2, or, or S3. Um, I just opened up a faith component that I have to say. So I had a friend back, this was back in like high school or something, and he's he was kind of a new Christian at the time, and he's like, I couldn't do it. I can't help myself. You're going to sin. I went two weeks without sinning, and that, that was it. I sinned. So, so 
your ability to not sin, I think, just to weave in a fun little faith component, uh, might be something that you know you shouldn't do or you should behave a certain way or according to God's law, and you can't help yourself. What do you think, Peter? Is that legit? I mean, I, no, I, to be honest with you, I, I think I still am not convinced of the premise that there's like ever a moment where like intransitivity in is the classic example that people will prefer A to B and B to C and therefore shouldn't prefer C to A. Like that, if you do, you're having intransitive preferences. You're contradicting yourself. I don't think that actually happens. Uh, and you could say, well, here's instance A, B and, you know, but of course the, the counter argument is, well, over time people can change their minds, right? Uh, and so then you're not really being intransitive with the yeah. references. You're just changing. Now, I, I, I have read the paper far enough to know that your response to that is like, well, like that seems like it's cheating. It's like maybe it is cheating to a certain extent, but whether or not it's cheating depends on whether or not it's true uh, that, you know, it's all a matter of whether people have changed their references. Because if it's not like I still I, I, I'm, I'm not convinced I am willing to throw it as three, like you said. But I'm not so sure that I would grant like there is an instance in which people are behaving contradictory to their own preferences. Well, if we keep those time slices getting shorter and shorter, the claim that, oh, it's just changing your mind over time gets less and less uh, <clears throat> believable. Right. And this is something that, that Rothbard says, too. He says, look, if the time preferences get shorter and shorter, it's not that we say that uh, um, we don't say that somehow that they uh, they really are. Uh, uh, perfectly transitive. It's just they're changing their mind. What we say in that case is that they're irrational. I agree that people would say that. I don't think I would be willing to go there. Now, there, there's two instances. So wait, wait, wait. Okay, go on. Is your position then that people are never irrational? I think, well, as, as a matter of analysis, I would certainly say that. As a matter of like truth, I think that there is some more to that claim. That I have more belief in that claim than I do the other claim, which is that people are sometimes irrational. So I, I have more belief that people are never irrational than I believe that sometimes people are irrational sometimes. Okay. So if your claim <laughs> is that nobody is ever irrational. Right. right. Uh, yeah. I, and I agree it gets less and less probable as you like make the time slide as people are seem to be rational closer and closer together, but you never like freeze and are able to see the intransitivity. <laughs> uh, and I think that's something that like you would even admit that's true. I agree with you, though, that it does get less probable as the time goes you know, closer. But I, I think maybe we're getting in the weeds. So, uh, is, so is your argument that they're choosing to not be rational, like they could be rational if they wanted to, but they're not? Or are you saying... No, I'm saying every action, so like, like the drug addicts, who's like, oh, I really don't want to do this. No, they're acknowledging that there are costs to their decisions, uh, and we all experience costs, and nobody likes giving away money when they buy something. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, is the thing that you buy, you value more than the money. And it's the same with the drug. Oh, I don't want to inject myself with the drug. Uh, yeah, you're giving away a lot of your life. You're giving away some good things. You're giving away things that I think you shouldn't give away. See, uh, but you're focusing on the cost without acknowledging the fact that I'm you're willing a, to bear it. I'm kind of on the rational, ignorant argument that you're, you're you're saying there's always rationality. It's just that you you don't want to acquire the information to make what maybe yeah an, talk, talk, talk is cheap, right? I don't want to do this. Is talk and yeah. I, to to me, it's like yeah, congratulations, you say that. Yeah. So <laughs> the problem here is that it seems like your claim that people is always rational is totally unfalsifiable, and it's an axiom. Um, and it's one that seems to fly in the face 
of empirical reality. I don't, I don't think it flies in the face at all. So that's the thing. No, I, I agree with you. It is, it is an accident. You just admitted that <laughs> as the time slice sure. gets shorter and shorter, it becomes less probable and probable. But right? not zero probability, which means it doesn't fly in the face of empirical reality. I never said it's completely contradicted by it. It, yeah. it flies in the face of the evidence that we gather when people do things that we think are <laughs> I, wildly irrational. I think if you isolated that specific fact as the only fact that matters, but here's some other facts that matter. Uh, drug addicts have still have demand curves that slope down and actually still behave rationally and will consume less drugs when the price of drugs go up. And so, yes, I agree that as you, know, you freeze instances, it becomes less and less probable that people are rational. But actually, drug addicts do respond rationally to economic incentives, just like other people do for their drugs, for their otherwise irrational habit. So, yes, there's some evidence. Other what? For their... Uh, <laughs> 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 well, I, I use, I, I use, I'm using your words here for their irrational habit. For the help, to help the listeners <laughs> out, you're using... The, 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 the supposedly, the behaviorally irrational. Uh, this is a lot of why I hate uh, this argument too much is because I don't like behavioralists, and I think that a lot of times they they're just ignoring the cost they're saying like well i would really like it if i didn't have to spend a hundred dollars for the tv and therefore it's irrational for me to buy the tv it's no you just don't like the downside that doesn't mean that the downside outweighs the upside and it's weird to me to assume otherwise because we don't with any other transactions so for the drug addict the cost of withdrawals or something yeah they know what they're Get the, into and why they continue to. So a supposed benefit of the subjective theory of value is that we know what's in our mind better than anybody else does, right? Sure. Um, but the problem with this is that according to the view that you put forward, and this is the view that we get in both, uh, you know, Rothbard and in Samuelson, is that values on this view actually are, uh, though we say they're subjective, we identify them objectively and behaviorally. We see what somebody does, and then we just say that they have a value. Values on this view are theoretical postulates. And these theoretical postulates are identified by objective behavior. So it mm -hmm. turns out then that, Peter, you do know better than the addict what's in the addict's mind. Uh, because you are saying, since the addict did this, I know what they value more than what the addict will say from their own point of view. Well, that, that's this the problem is you when you say the addict will say you move into the realm of surveys, uh, and I don't really believe in surveys. And so I, I think I think what a person does reflects what's in their minds better than what they say. Uh, and I actually don't think that that's contradicting their own accounts because I don't think their own account is what they say. I think it's what they do. And so actually, I would say that the opposite is contradictory to their own account, which is what they you do. You have just said that. Uh, what goes on in a person's mind like that you have a better view on it from the third person perspective no because uh, if you said that this person says that this is the account of my mind and you said i agree i would say you are contradicting uh their actual accounts because their actual account consists in their action, not their words. So there's a symmetric problem here. You actually face the same problem that I do. No. You're just valuing the words and I'm valuing the actions. No, I'm saying if subjectivity really is supposed to be what's in the head, and if epistemic asymmetry is the case. In the head as presented by people's actions, not their words. That's not in the head. No, that's the opposite of the head. No, when people act, they're acting upon what's in their head. No. <laughs> epistemic asymmetry specifically says that you have direct access to what goes on in your head, other people don't. That's the point of epistemic Yeah, you have direct asymmetry. access and you access it via you, your actions rather than you. That's not access. If people don't know language, they don't have access to the things in their head. That's not the case. Right. 
So that's what I'm saying is like, no, you no, don't no. have to Peter, ask Peter, someone verbally. That wouldn't be epistemic asymmetry if I have just as much access to what goes on in your head as you do, which that would have to be the case if you were right. Well, ex, ex post, but not ex ante. Peter, you've just admitted that nobody, that ex post, ex post trumps ex ante. I don't, I don't a little see. bit. With you have action. said that since, well, ex, ex post, we can know what's in the person's head. That trumps any ex ante account. So you have just given up on the subjective. This is what happens. Is no, that no, I, 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 I'm, I'm not following because what I'm saying is that ex post, after we, fact, we observe, yeah, after the facts, we observe what a person values and they have made what they value known to the world through their action. Ex ante, they're the ones who had access to it, and I didn't, and that's how they were able to act on their highest value in the first place. That's what I'm saying. And so you I said that their acting is their accessing. That's kind of what I heard too. Yes, it's it is like when you act, you make the access. That available. is the accessing. Then everybody has third person has as much. Um, epistemic I can contact know, with it. What I would say is I can else. know your values after the facts, but I couldn't know them before the facts. And you, the moment before you've actually, when you've determined to act, do have that value. But you can't know them completely. No, no, Peter, you, you actually can't say that. Why? You can't say that be right before, because the only way you can say that is if is if it would actually also be impossible for you not only to know it, but to like say it or anything like that. Because then you would have to admit that there would be some cases where you could what you uh, thought your values were could disagree with the way you acted. I, I think I might have lost you. I, I admit like that getting a little bit lost in logic here, but my I would say that there are it's not the case that you like can verbally say what your values are well, necessarily. I, I, I don't know. Can we go back to the Mountain Dew just for a second? Yeah, I don't know go, no, 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 we empirically observed your action that we know your valuation of it in terms of dollars is at least $2.14. But your bot, your purchase, you didn't share that you actually value it at $4. You would have paid $4. I think you're right, Justin, I, I with the example. I think you're right that I cannot say the valuation consists only in the action, but I still think I'm free to deny that it is available via your ability to communicate it with words. And so maybe it is possible for you to know your value beforehand, not be able to communicate it verbally, but to be able to successfully communicate it with action. If it's possible to know the value beforehand from the inside, mm -hmm. and it's uh, what economists are doing is assigning value as a theoretical postulate based on what you do afterwards, then on pain of saying that we know a priori that these two things are the same, which is what economists are doing, mm -hmm. You have to admit that it's logically possible for these things to disagree with each other. And if that's the case, here's what economists do. They say, forget all the stuff that's inside the head. We will just use whatever somebody did and say that, and postulate that their val that the subjective value is exactly uh, whatever they did. If I were smarter, have you shown me <laughs> that there are instances where the head actually departs from the action? We have just shown, uh, talked about these uh, like attic examples where it seems like the most plausible uh, interpretation is that, uh, well, you can't take any interpretation that doesn't give up one of S1, one through S3.
but it seems I'm already like, going to abandon S3. I'm yeah, fine with uh, that. Yeah, so uh, even if we get, uh, abandon S3, but it seems like a plausible uh, interpretation of this of these people is that uh, they know what they value, but they find themselves incapable of acting on their and, values. And I, I will give one other thing uh, in that I proposed initially intentionally a modified S1. I actually wouldn't say necessarily an S1 for the listeners. I know this may be the same. Yeah, we got to recap what S1 uh, S1 is the idea that uh, the value exists in subjects, right? In the, in the mind. In the mind. In yeah. the mind of the subject. And so what I, I wouldn't agree with that. But what I would say is people's actions are based on what they believe the values are. And so that doesn't mean the value exists in the mind, only that when people act, they in fact act on values that they believe are true. And so they could be wrong about that. So you're just bringing up the, the idea of uncertainty, that there's some unknowns that you, you can't, you don't, there's not enough knowledge to know Pieces what one, your value is. one is about the location, though. Yeah. So to say yeah. that I disagree with S1, I'm going to say something else that has nothing to do with location. That's that's not a modified S1. That's just abandoning S1, right? Yeah, that's, maybe it's an alternative proposition. But I here, here's here's why it matters, I think. And this is why I'm interested in preserving it, is because we have in the economy prices and those prices are based on people's decisions to buy and sell and i don't want to lose the fact that some of that buying and selling and the value the prices that are assigned come from individual interpretation of value that doesn't mean that there aren't other things involved in the you know creation of prices but at least one of these things are the right or wrong the interpretations of individuals of value so we don't have to throw interpretations in there. We can, I think we can get everything you want by instead of saying values are subjective, you just say that they're individual. Sure. And and that doesn't or, or assign them a yeah, location. Yeah. It just says that value values are properties. Something is is a value of, uh, to someone. Um, and people have different values and they value things differently. And that's someone and that's has a mind. Fine, and right? that someone has a mind. That doesn't right? say anything about where values are. And it also doesn't say that uh individuals have unique and and infallible access all the time to exactly what they value okay um, so that will get you i think almost everything you need to be able to at least claim those two things that were worth claiming i said at the beginning which is that we get mutual gains uh, from trade and that a laissez-faire policy generally results in overall uh increases of wealth to the society. So I actually like both of those things, but I'm actually not super interested in preserving either of them for this conversation. What I'm interested in preserving and what I'm uh, fearful of not preserving is that if values are not uh, maybe individual as we say them, in other words, if we can find like correct values, for example, correct value might be that not heroin is better than heroin then actually you lose some of the, I think, maybe I'm wrong, but you, it seems like you lose some of the artifice of economic theory. In other words, economic theory, what it does is it takes people's actions as given. It says, let's assume that this person did what they want to do. And based on that assumption, we are going to be able to observe things about the world. And so like the prices that arise are reflections of people's actions. But if in fact people can be sort of like in a sense wrong about those actions, then you could find like real prices. You could find some sort of formula for like true heroin preference that is good and then make some price for heroin that's like departs from the real price of heroin. And I don't want to do that. Maybe your view does not actually imply that that would happen or, or could happen. 
But it seems to me if it's not subjective or individual, maybe is a better word, uh, that it would. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes, but my claim is that they are individual and that uh, and that, that gets you all you need and that you will not be able to find like the true price of whatever heroin is or whatever, right? Um, but it seems like, as you admitted earlier, if we're giving up infallibility, we don't have to say that, uh, you know, tr heroin bad or whatever, but you can say something like this person is wrong about thinking that heroin is good for them in this specific case at this specific time. But then in a sense, you you have said that there is like a more a more true price for heroin, because if this person is wrong for consuming it, then they're wrong for buying it. And if they're wrong for buying it, uh, if buying and selling decisions should be different, then prices should be different, too, in some sort of sense. I'm kind of uncomfortable with that admission. I don't think that that's exactly the case. Okay. Um, all that I think you need is to say that most people, most of the time, act on their beliefs and desires. And okay. in fact, what somebody like Rothbard or uh, Mises, or because they're right. following Kant, say, have to sure. say here yeah, is yeah. that people who, uh, you know, persons' bodies that act in ways that don't seem rational, they're not actually persons. They're not agents then. So this has been a production of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. Five-star rating helps other people find us and please forward it on to your family and friends who you think would like to listen to us. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.